of you have ever left a ball game early because your team was so far behind and you just didn't think there's no way to catch up? No, a few of you know, but come on, how many of you are quite, okay, well, not many. I thought maybe more. I've, I've left ball games. How many of you have done that only to find out a little later they hit three home runs, they came back and won the game? Has anybody? I remember walking through leaving the Braves game, walking out to the parking lot, and then this eruption of applause. And I'm wondering, what just went on? You turned the radio on and realized, my team came back and I missed it. You know, what if uh, last year in the Braves NLCS game two against the Dodgers, they're down four to two, it's two outs in the bottom of the eight, and you just say, you know what, we're not going to win this thing. Dodgers beat us last year. Weren't, they, weren't we up 3-1 the year before? You know, Braves never win. Remember the Super Bowl? Oh, man, it's forget it. I'm leaving. And so then you miss Rosario's remarkable slide into home, and then Albies comes in on Austin Riley's two-run double. They tie it up in the bottom of the eighth, come back in the ninth, and win the game. And you missed it because you left early. Now, imagine if Satan hated the Braves and all Braves fans, okay? And he had the inside scoop on that game or other games where he knew the, the Braves are going to win. But he, he, so he knows, he, I can't change the outcome of the game. But sometimes even worse than the Braves winning is seeing all the Atlanta people happy and celebrate. I hate that. So what, what might he try to do? I think he would encourage us when we get about to the sixth, seventh inning and we're down. He, you know what? Braves never come back. Just review our history. Tom Brady is still a sore point for me. They're not going to make it. You know, just, just go on home. I think he would just sow those seeds of discouragement, frustration, and try to get us to leave, right? Leave before the end of the game. He knows the outcome, but if he can at least stop the celebrations, he's won something. Well, actually, Satan has done this, and he is doing this. But it's not in baseball. It's in, it's not the game of life, but you think about it's in the game of life, right? Satan hates our hero. He hates Jesus. He hates anyone who follows Jesus, but he, all, but he also knows the end of the story. He knows that he's doomed. But one of his brilliant schemes as our arch enemy is to try to keep us, keep us from knowing the end of the story. And so what, what is one of the most controversial books in the Bible? Book of Revelation, right? Which is filled with hope and yet... How often have you heard someone say, you know what, I try, and it's just too hard. It's the, there are so many different views on the book. of It's so confusing. I, I, I just don't read it. It's like we throw in the towel and leave in the bottom of the eighth inning. Now today, we're going to look at Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 14, in which the writer is very aware of Satan's schemes and strategies, and he's very concerned that his readers... We'll leave the stadium before the game is over. And it seems like victory is out of reach. Now, in the, back, the background of Hebrews, these, these Christians, um, for them, being a Christian was getting 
more and more costly. The culture around them was tightening the screws on them as followers of Jesus. Their world was becoming increasingly hostile, increasingly antagonistic to their allegiance to Jesus. Some of them had been in prison. Uh, Some of them were being mistreated. Chapter 13 says Timothy himself had just been set free from prison. And because many of them had identified with and gone to care for their fellow believers who were imprisoned, then as a result of that identification, their own homes, their own businesses were plundered. But they had joyfully accepted that plundering because they knew we, we have a better hope. But now things were heating up again. A little religion was permissible, but following Jesus, the crucified Nazarene who claims to be king of the world and demands total allegiance, that's too much for the culture. That was too much for the culture they lived in. The heat was turning up on them, and some of them were starting to back off a little bit and tempted to say, you know what, I'm just going to back off. What they were tempted is to back off just into Judaism and leave Christianity. I can still believe in God, still be religious, but the heat, this will take the heat off me from the culture. And so when the writer speaks to them, he talks to them about three things. The peril of unbelief, chapter 3, verse 12. Our persistent need of exhortation, chapter 3, verse 13. And then in verse 14, the paramount importance of holding fast to Christ. So let's read there in Hebrews 3, verse 12 to 14 as we begin. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we face some of the similar pressures that these Hebrew Christians were facing. And it sounds like their persecution was worse, Lord, but our temptation is similar. Things get difficult and we're tempted to throw in the towel. Lord, would you encourage us today? Would you just impress on us the peril of unbelief? Would you impress on us our need for persistent exhortation and encouragement, Lord, so that we might cling to Christ and hold fast to him. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So point number one in verse 12, the peril of unbelief. Verse 12 again says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, brothers, Watch out, wake up, pay attention. It's, a, it's what we'd yell to our driver if he's dozing off and drifting into oncoming traffic, right? You're not calm there. Um, you're drifting across the yellow line. Take care, wake up. This isn't a warning about stubbing our toe or about making a bad financial decision. This is about falling away from the living God. This is about heaven and hell, an eternal destiny. 
No one wakes up on Thursday morning and decides to fall away from the living God, do they? It doesn't happen that way. So how does it happen? How does one go from gung-ho about following Jesus and loving him to renouncing their faith in him? Aaron's made mention a couple times that Googling pastors who have abandoned the faith, and we all know of some of them, right? It's sobering. How do you go from apparently loving Christ to renouncing that, the, whole, the entire Christian faith? Well, what is he warning us about? I think that'll help us to figure out how to answer the first question. What is he warning us about? Well, in verse 12, the writer's warning us about an evil, unbelieving heart. So what is an evil, unbelieving heart? The example he uses here is about the Old Testament Israelites. So right before and right after the passage we just read, he's talking about the Israelites in the, in the time when God brought them out of Egypt. Remember, rescued them from slavery in Egypt. The ten plagues, he decimates the Egyptians. They plunder the Egyptians as they come out. He leads them through the Red Sea on dry ground. He leads them with a pillar of fire by night cloud by day. They experience all of this. And then grumbling started to set in because they had no water. Then there was no bread. And then they wanted meat. And then they sent the 12 spies in and the land is great, but, but the giants are too big. And the Lord says in Numbers chapter 14 when they complained about They said, we can't go in there. They'll eat us like grasshoppers. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? How long will they despise me and not believe me in spite of all that I have done for them? And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is underscoring here. So back in verse 7 through 9, in addressing his, his audience, he says in chapter 3, verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me the te- to the test and saw my works for 40 years. They had seen all that God had done. They knew personally all that God had done. But when there's no bread, no water, for that short time, they rebelled and did not believe him. So, what is an evil, unbelieving heart? The essence of an evil, unbelieving heart is this. It's choosing to focus our attention and base our judgments on what God is doing that we can't understand. Instead of, or I'm sorry, while refusing to look at what God has said and done that we can clearly understand. An evil, unbelieving heart is choosing to focus our attention and base our judgments on what God is doing that we can't understand. And there's quite a bit of that in life, right? Instead of, or rather than, looking at what God has said and done that we can clearly understand, refusing to look at those things. And the reason it's an evil heart is because we do it willfully. 
This kind of unbelief has nothing to do with ignorance. It's willfulness, willful choosing and willful refusing. God says there, they saw my works. We see God's work, right? We know a lot of what God has done for us. It happens little by little, inch by inch, one little decision at a time not to believe. It's a gradual hardening, isn't it? Like soil in the backyard in a Georgia summer. Just no rain, hardens, dries up, gets very hard. You've heard how many businesses fail imperceptibly slowly and then impossibly fast. Imperceptibly slowly and then impossibly fast. And that's the same way many professing Christians suffer shipwreck of their lives. Imperceptibly slowly and then impossibly fast. What are the signs? What are the signs of that happening? What are the signs of an unbelieving hardening hearts so that we can know what to be on guard for, right? How do we recognize in our own lives or in a friend's life? And we see, I'll mention several things. We see almost all of them in the Old Testament Israelites. The first one is doubting the character of God. God, you're not good. You don't care about me. So doubting the character of God. The second one is questioning the word of God. I know it says that, but God, you really, God can't believe, can't mean that. Questioning the character of God, doubting the word of God, criticizing and despising the people of God. People are a bunch of hypocrites at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, you know, you're probably right. But come join us. You'll be part of the party. We, we are weak, and we, and we doubt, we criticize our leaders, Fourth thing is neglecting the worship of God and the fellowship of his people. Fifth one is grumbling, right? So what are the signs that an unbelieving heart, a hardening heart is happening? Well, doubting the character of God, questioning the word of God, criticizing and despising the people of God, neglecting the worship of God and fellowship with his people, and then grumbling. So some application questions here from verse 12. How is your heart toward the Lord right now? How's it been in the last few weeks and months? Are you cultivating humble faith? Are you resting in him? Are you trusting in him? Or do you feel that doubt just starting to whittle away at your joy or questioning, grumbling, setting in? What have you clearly seen God do in your life, in the lives of your brothers and sisters, in the Bible? What have you clearly seen him do that you really don't want to focus on. And instead, all your attention or a good bit of your attention is on the things that he's doing that you, you can't figure out. And you're just saying, why should I trust God? So how do we combat and resist the peril of unbelief, the danger of unbelief? Well, the writer tells us in verse 13, and this is our second point. Look at verse 13 with me. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So this is point two, our persistent need of exhortation. 
the writer's antidote to the peril of an unbelieving heart is mutual exhortation. Look at verse 13 again. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so you don't get a hardened heart. How frequently do you imagine yourself to need exhortation, encouragement, cheering on, reminding in the Christian faith? if you are to resist unbelief and not fall away from the living God? Once a month? Maybe once a week. To be honest, I'm not sure I believe what he says here, that I need this daily. I think I'm learning that the older I get, the harder life gets, realizing I need a lot more exhortation and encouragement than I used to think I need. The Holy Spirit is telling us, he's telling you, you need it every day, every day. So when you find yourself drifting, your heart hardening a little bit, your love fading, your joy diminishing, do you seek out means of encouragement? You seek the fellowship of the saints, God's word? Or do you find yourself thinking, not this Sunday. I don't want to be with those people. Can't stand hearing that same old, you know the things that go on in our minds. Find your Bible, collecting a little bit of dust. I've got lots of Bible. You know, you know, sadly, I probably have 45 Bibles at home. Anybody beat that? <laughs> we collect a lot of them over the years, right? They're not going to do me any good if I don't pick it up and read it, right? But I've got a lot of Bibles. Are they collecting dust or are they feeding our souls? Brothers and sisters, this, this passage is not here to condemn us. I'm, I'm not here to condemn anyone. I think we all find ourselves from time to time drifting into unbelief, right? We feel that little bit of hardening happened, that dulling of our love for God. That is common. We're easily deceived into thinking, you know what? I'll get over this. It'll just pass. And this passage here in God's kindness is to wake us up and warn us, no, this is serious. This is serious. You're drifting off the road. You're about to crash through the guardrails. Wake up. And that's why the writer picks up this same theme again in chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, in a verse that many of you are very familiar with where the writer says in 1024, let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good, we good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is implied here in verse 24 is significant. And that is this. We each have a responsibility to see that we are exhorted, encouraged. You have a responsibility to see that you get the exhortation and encouragement you need. And I do too. And the way we get encouraged, the way we get exhorted, and the way we resist the hardening effects of unbelief is by coming to where the exhortation takes place, right? In the fellowship of the believers. I have been so encouraged and strengthened these last, last few months as we've gone through some difficult things. And many of you have too, but I've been so encouraged by our Sunday mornings together, just to sing together, 
to hear Aaron preach the word, just the conversation and prayers with many of you after church. You've asked me, how are you doing? And we get in a conversation and I call Josiah over, would you pray with us? And he says, wait a minute, and I need prayer too. But we're praying with one another and encouraging one another. And that happens, not only here, but that happens here on Sunday morning. Don't neglect this, brothers and sisters. It's also happened in the study through Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God, on Wednesday evening with Glenn and Chuck and Joey and Philip, Chris and Derek and Ronald, and just to talk together and share the areas. where There are all kinds of areas we have a hard time trusting the Lord with, right? All kinds of areas. Just a reminder, God is faithful. God is sovereign over all things. He's all-loving and all-wise. Am I going to choose to trust myself and not him? That's idiotic. And yet that's where I go constantly. God, I think I have a better idea. But I need the reminder, the exhortation that's happening together. Such a, such a worthwhile time with those men. Sharing things from the word with Carol almost every day at home. And by the way, if your spouse is a believer, then God has given him or her to you for mutual encouragement. Cultivate that, brothers and sisters. Cultivate that. One of Satan's strategies is to undermine and negate any encouragement between husband and wife. Right? Don't, don't you know that he's out to undermine that? Between parents and children. So brothers and sisters, cultivate that. It's a battle. But don't give up on that. Keep humbly work together. Ask each other, can, can we do this together? Help one another. And for those of you single brothers and sisters, I know that many of you seek out deep friendships where you can do the same thing because we really need each other, don't we? We are not going to make it on our own. A couple application questions here. The writer says there is something we need every day. Now, all of us check certain things every day, right? We check stock market, our investments, the brave scores and highlights. We check our social media, check our weight, all kinds of things. So a question. Are you as concerned about getting a hard heart as about your investments dropping? Which do you check more often? Are you as in tune to your own spiritual health as to your physical health? So many people walk around, how many steps did you do today? Well, 8,964, you know. And, and those are good things to check. Do we have the same attention to our physical health? Are we aware of our heartbeat? Is, do I have a hardening heart? Am I aware of that? Am I even concerned about that? The writer says this is a serious peril. Because falling away from God doesn't happen in one day. It's inch by inch, right? Inch by inch. Little decision by little decision. So, check our hearts. The Holy Spirit is telling you if there's something we need to put at the top of our daily checklist. Are we being exhorted today? Are we being exhorted daily so that none of us become hardened by the deceitfulness of an unbelieving heart? Point number three, in verse 14, he says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed 
we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So here, point three, is the paramount importance of holding fast to Christ. To share in Christ means, it it can mean many things that are promised to us in Christ, but if you just read through the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, it means being a recipient of the following things. This great salvation that Christ has purchased for us as our high priest and savior. He has saved us forever to the uttermost. That's part of what it means to share in Christ. It means that we will share in all that he owns and inherits, which just happens to be the universe, brothers and sisters. We will share in his inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ. It means that we will receive the great city, the eternal homeland, the heavenly country. It's the new heavens and new earth that Christ is preparing for his people. All that is what it means. We will share in, we have come to share in Christ. If. If we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. So a good start doesn't necessarily guarantee a good finish, does it? If we're to receive what Christ has promised, we must hold fast our original confidence. And we know, we all know friends who appear to have started really well and then tubed it somewhere along the way. Now, I know this gets into a theological question, trying to figure out like, how does perseverance work with God's sovereignty? But here's how Bible teachers have tried to express this. Perseverance is the mark of election. Persevering in the faith is the mark of genuine faith. Okay? Perseverance is assured for genuine believers, but it's not mechanical. It's not like an automatic input-output. Press go back here when I prayed the prayer or went down or got baptized, whatever, and then bloop, automatically make it to heaven. It's not like that. Yes, if you are genuinely born again, you will make it to the celestial city. But it's not just boop, skip, you know, skip all the chutes and ladders and go from square one all the way up to the top. It's walking through step by step the challenges of life, receiving the means of grace that God has given us all along the way. Trusting all along the way. That's how we persevere in the faith. In Revelation, John puts it this way, he who endures to the end will be saved. If you're genuine, if you're truly born again, brothers and sisters, you will make it. It's God's promise. It's the Holy Spirit's promise. But you've got to cling to Christ and exercise faith in his means of grace all the way to get there. So holding fast or holding firm, the writer uses this five times, at least five times here in the book of Hebrews, So what does that mean? What does it mean to hold fast to Christ? Well, holding fast to anything necessitates that we let go of other things, right? You can't hold to Christ and hold fast to the world. Okay, I'm holding fast to you. You've got to let go of other things and hold fast to Christ alone. So it necessitates letting go of other things. 
Holding fast to Christ means we don't leave the ball game in the bottom of the eighth, right? Just because things look bad, no, we're, we're not going to leave. We are sticking with Christ all the way. Holding fast requires you to know and be convinced of how glorious Christ is. You're not going to hold fast to something that's not worth anything to you. You've got to be convinced. You've got to know Christ is glorious. And in Hebrews, one of, one of the greatest passages that we ought to read, read probably at least every week or so with at home or whatever, is that opening passage in chapter 1. When he opens, I mean, the whole book is, the whole letter is about Christ is better, right? Christ is greater. And he opens it up, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, said, In these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything you study in science should make you worship Christ. Because there's not one drop of... Now, I know they don't always tell the truth about stuff. But even an evolutionist will tell you amazing things about this universe. And for you and I, it ought to just make us worship Christ because he holds all of it together. Whether it's the development of the fetus in the womb or this vast universe with gazillion galaxies. Jesus Christ holds it together simply by the word of his power. You know anybody who even, and is anybody even in his universe? Christ is glorious, brothers and sisters, and we've got to know that if we're going to hold fast to him. We also need to be convinced of how great his coming kingdom will be. In chapter 12, verse 24, 22 to 24, the writer says this about Christ's kingdom and about our hope. He says to the, to the Christians in 1222, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And a few verses later, he says, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Aren't you looking forward to that? Right now, we feel like we live in a country that is being shaken to pieces, and it is. But this isn't our home. We have a kingdom that will never be shaken, and we've got to know that if we're going to hold fast to Christ. And then fourthly, about holding fast to Christ means we've got to join him outside the camp. Chapter 13, verse 12 to 14, the writer says, Jesus suffered outside the gate, outside the camp, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. If we want to cling to Christ, we cannot cling to this country or this, or the United States. We can't cling to this as our hope. 
If we think we can get it all here, we can't cling to Christ at the same time. Moses understood this. And it's a remarkable description of Moses in Hebrews 11, verse 24. Moses knew how glorious Messiah was. He knew what Messiah's promises were. And in chapter 11, verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he, was, he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had everything in Egypt, right? I mean, wealth, prestige, power, anything he wanted, he could have had it in Egypt. But he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. He considered the shame of being united with Messiah and with God's people greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Brothers and sisters, we're we're facing that. We have Christians throughout the centuries have faced that, right? Do I want it here? Or do I realize the reproach of Christ Following Jesus is going to be a shameful thing. We are not going to be popular. Do I consider the reproach of Christ greater treasures than the wealth of Atlanta and the United States? That's the choice, brothers and sisters. But if we want, to, if we want all that Christ has promised, we've got to cling to Christ, and that means we've got to let go of other things. Sometimes it helps us to get a perspective outside of our own from Christians in other parts of the world. And we just received the latest Voice of the Martyrs magazine, which I'm sure some of you also received. And this one is about Christians in Pakistan. And Pakistan has about 230 million people. I think it's the fifth largest population in the world. 98% Muslim, okay? Consider that for a minute. 98% Muslim, a little less than 2% Christian. So in the introduction, you could put that first slide up there. So he writes, Most Christians in Pakistan are born into economic systems in which, unless they renounce Christ, their only only employment opportunities will be undesirable, labor-intensive jobs such as cleaning sewage pipes. How's that for a plumbing company? Or making bricks by hand. Even worse, many are forced from birth to perform these tasks within financial schemes that keep them in permanent bondage to their Muslim employers. Christian women in particular suffer under employers' back-breaking quotas, and some Christian young women face the threat of being forced into a Muslim marriage. Put the next one there, right? This lady, Jamila, fled from her husband because he threatened to kill her and the children because she had put her trust in Christ. Any of us face that yet? She arrived at a safe house with her two young boys the day this picture was taken. Islamists frequently target Christian women at work. So Samina Bibi's supervisor locked her in a room at the factory where she worked after he overheard her praying on her lunch break. A co-worker helped her escape, but Sabina could not continue working at the factory and had to go elsewhere to try to find how to make a living for her family.
Some Christians in Pakistan are born into indentured servitude and enslaved at one of the country's many brick kilns. And that was the situation for Hamza, who inherited, inherited his parents' debt to a brick kiln owner. Imagine that. After he took a Muslim church co-worker to church with him, his employer began beating and harassing him, and the treatment continued even after he was sold to another employer. Last year, thankfully, he received money to be able to pay off his debt and get out of this situation and start another business. So now he has a rickshaw taxi and a transport business. Because of Pakistan's blasphemy laws, Christians are sometimes falsely charged with blaspheming Islam, the Koran, or Muhammad. Convictions can result in harsh prison sentences and even the death penalty. When a Muslim co-worker asks two sisters, Mewish and Sarish, about their Christian faith, other co-workers at the factory reported the sisters for evangelism. Their boss sent them to another factory where they were confronted by a Muslim religious leader who tried to convert them. The two sisters were beaten when they refused to renounce Christ, but they were able to escape and leave the factory. And today, these women remain in the country as faithful witnesses to Christ while studying for new careers. Jason, if you and the guys can come back up. Very few of our brothers and sisters in Pakistan are worrying about their 401k dropping right now, are they? And you know why? They don't have one. They're worried about having rice and beans to put on the table for their kids to eat tonight. But one thing they are sure about, they know that Christ is worth it, right? They know Christ is worth holding on to. I dare say that most of them don't live under the illusion that since they came to Christ, life is going to get better and everything's going to be just blissful health, wealth, and happiness. Now, we don't buy into the prosperity gospel, that health and wealth teaching of many of the televangelists, but when difficulties start coming our way and good things we enjoy start to be taken away or threatened, don't you find in your heart that you may believe more prosperity th theology than you'd like to admit? I do. We all want Joel Osteen's teaching, your best life ever. I'll sign up for that. Except if we're reading our Bibles, we know that's just not true, right? It's a false hope. You may get everything the world offers. I might get everything the world offers, but if we forfeit Christ, we lose everything. This life will not satisfy, brothers and sisters. There are so many joys the Lord gives us in life, but it will never fully satisfy. And if we'll let that sink in, that will help us say, you know what? I'm going to put my hope elsewhere. I'm going to cling to Christ. So how precious is Christ to you brother and sister. If you want to receive all or any of what Christ promises, then you and I must hold fast to him. But brothers and sisters, don't throw in the towel. 
Don't leave the stadium in the bottom of the eighth inning, no matter how bad the score looks right now. And at times, it looks really bad, doesn't it? No matter how strong our opponent appears to be, no matter how many of us feel like we're on the disabled list, we're on the injured reserve list, we are going to win, right? Christ is great. Christ is king. One day he's going to return, brothers and sisters. And one of the ways we hold fast to him is by refusing to focus our attention and base our judgments on what God is doing that we don't understand. There are all kinds of things going on in the world that God is doing that we don't understand right now. Refuse to put your focus on that and choose instead to build your faith in what God has said and done that we can clearly understand. And the clearest thing in all the world, in all of human history, is that God loved the world. He loved you and sent His only beloved Son to come bear your sins. He took all of your sins. He had none. Took all of your sins, all of my sins. And he bore all of God's wrath against you, brother and sister, against me in his body. Are you and I going to turn away from that and say, God, you don't love me? That's a hardening, rebellious heart, is it not? God forbid that any one of us would say, God, you don't love me. When he did that for you, for me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his own flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, but as, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let's stand and sing of our hope. And if you want to turn around and look at a brother or sister, if you want to just give them a hug and say, thank you for walking this road with me, would you feel free to do that, brothers and sisters? We need each other. Let's sing.